Hello, welcome to the How to Eat Alone podcast with me, Julia Georgialis. I'm a baker and I write about food. This podcast celebrates the art of eating alone and in it I explore topics surrounding loneliness and aloneness. I'll be talking to people from all walks of life about their own experiences of solitude and solo dining. With each episode, I'll share a recipe which is designed to be cooked and eaten by one person and one person only because I find that most recipes are written for two or more people. So if you do find yourself eating alone, you can cook along whilst listening to this podcast. Think of me as your dining buddy. So I thought this episode was going to be about mushrooms, specifically the magic variety. I thought I was going to talk about mushroom trips and how they change our perspectives. And maybe we were going to talk about mycology and possibly other substance-induced spiritual rituals like ayahuasca and peyote ceremonies. And and then I was probably going to shoehorn a mushroom risotto recipe or something in. I, I thought this because I had totally assumed that I knew what Helen Sprout, my next guest for this episode, does for a living. Helen is from Yorkshire originally. Um, she's lived in London for a while and now she lives in Lisbon, which is where I met her. She's a psychotherapist. She's just completed her Kundalini Yoga teacher training and... Over the last year, she's been telling me about some new training that she's been doing in psychedelic integration. So I basically thought that psychedelic integration was when people took mushrooms with their therapists. (laughs) I just want to be very clear and say that this is not what psychedelic integration is and... I think I'd got the wrong end of the stick because there's been a lot in the media recently about the research being done that looks at how certain psychedelics could help mental health issues. So psychedelic integration, contrary to what we see in documentaries and read about in articles, is still being really carefully researched. Some of these documentaries make it seem like psychedelic integration is something that is very much established, but it's actually not. And we still don't know very much about the brain and about these substances and about consciousness, really. Also, these drugs are still very illegal, kids. So let's just be clear about that. And you know, it also turns out, and and I think we all knew this deep down, that there really is no quick fix for mental ill health or solving your own problems. It isn't as easy as taking a pill, tripping out for an hour and a half and boom, job done. We still have to do the work and usually we have to do this work on our own. We have to figure things out in our own minds. Helen is all about doing this work and this episode is about doing this work and about going on these deep diving healing journeys, you know, often on our own, whether they're induced by substance or not. Helen's been on a lot of difficult journeys and done a lot of interesting things. Even though her job description is quite varied, you know, she's a psychotherapist, she's a yoga teacher, and now she's part of this broader research, she does have one quite clear line of inquiry. So I started by asking her how she pulls these interests together and how she became interested in the potential of psychedelics and altered states of consciousness. 
think I've always been very interested in altered states of consciousness and sort of very interested in consciousness. It's one of life's biggest mysteries that we know very little about. And my hunch is that we will never really fully know one way or the other what, what it's all about. So it's a fascinating topic for me. And, you know, when we talk about altered states of consciousness, we talk about sort of things that can be induced by substance. But also as human beings, we have the ability to alter our consciousness without substance and reach some very unordinary states. And as a psychotherapist, I think sometimes psychotherapy can be a bit like an altered state of consciousness. And yeah, you know, there's a lot of research coming out at the moment of how altered states of consciousness can be very healing for people with certain problems. So just a sort of natural progression from being curious about human beings really. I facilitate workshops with an organization called the Mind Foundation. So there's no use of substance. We focus on psychedelic integration to help somebody process and make sense of the experiences that they have if they choose that as a path for their own well-being, healing, expanding, changing their mind, whatever you want to call it. So if people choose that as their journey, then I'm sort of here to help integrate. That's really interesting because I think sometimes when you decide to go on that kind of journey when you know either through psychedelics or whatever else it is really personal and I always wondered what it would be like to like let someone else into that but actually to kind of have someone there who helps you do that still alone I think is actually really powerful yeah absolutely I mean to help somebody make sense of something that that might be difficult for them to process alone despite having that experience on their own I I mean if you look at some of these uh, rituals and where the these things come from and originally are sort of always done in community you know there sort of should be some part of it that's uh, that's with others I think where you have another person to uh, bounce off I think Helen when you talk about altered states of consciousness what's the spectrum can it be as something as small as daydreaming yeah I would think daydreaming is an altered state of consciousness uh, I think you could say like an orgasm is, is, is an altered state of consciousness and then you sort of go through a big spectrum of all sorts of other things and then through to sort of maybe what people would say were more powerful altered states of consciousness and these are sort of usually things that are induced by substance so like taking drugs to induce a trip or maybe getting drunk absolutely by taking a substance that will sort of alter to your state i see so I suppose the interest in using psychedelics in psychiatry and and psychotherapy isn't anything new. It went on originally in the 50s. And what happened was they did lots of this uh, investigation and it appeared that it was a very promising thing to move forward with. So the government's backed using uh, LSD as something that could be therapeutically helpful for people in terms of uh, psychiatry. And it got caught up in the subculture of the, the 60s, the hippie movement, the political state at that time, and then very quickly went from something that was deemed as having potential to the worst classification possible of a, of a drug. And it, it seems like it was a, a political move at that time. So there's been a resurgence of the research and it's showing promise again, even though it's very early stages. So there's been a sort of second wave of it, I guess. Why do you think there has been a second wave? I think there's been a second wave because we see so many people suffering with depression, anxieties, you know, it, it's becoming, I think, more prevalent the more we sort of progress in the modern world. So I think really there's been a resurgence because it's necessary. Yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we're all being made quite aware that these mental illnesses, like, you know, like depression and anxiety, are growing in prevalence and and are being treated quite heavily with antidepressants and anti-anxiety tablets. Do you, I mean, do you feel like with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy that could replace that kind of medication? I think from what they're showing now is that there may be some promise with these substances and they may be less addictive and they may be less harmful. And what the sort of early studies are showing, and we don't know so much about this at this stage, is that it's less of a lifelong solution. Many people take antidepressants and really struggle to come off them. So I think that, yeah, I mean, we have to let science sort of work out what's more effective and less harmful for people. Right, I see. So it's like less of a dependent tendency on medications. I think really the other thing that's very different is that when people are talking about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, the point being is it's not outside of psychotherapy. And they're very much saying, no, it's not that you take this and this is something that that, that you will be cured of all your ills. You take this with psychotherapy and this will assist the process of psychotherapy. And I think for some people that might be very helpful. And I think the research is very focused focused on certain areas so we can't be getting too excited about this being sort of a fix for everything yeah I mean I do feel like you know from things that I've read people are getting very excited about it because you see in the Guardian or the BBC that this helps people with depression so therefore you know I'm gonna go and uh, I'm gonna go and dose myself yeah, I'm gonna go on... take some mushrooms and I'll be just fine <laughs> exactly and it, it, it's really not and they're stressing that it goes alongside psychotherapy and it's taken with professionals. I think I've been very interested in this topic for some time, but I've gotten more serious about it in the last year. And I'm just very focused on the process of psychedelic integration or integration of any sort, really. So, yeah, so I've trained uh, in order to facilitate workshops for people. So you had a totally different career, didn't you, before you became a psychotherapist? I, I wanted to know, really, why you had that career change. Yeah, so so the sort of of change to psychotherapy really came when I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 28. So that really was something that despite obviously being physically difficult, it was emotionally difficult. And I think that's what led me into psychotherapy. Really, it was the combination of that experience and trying to sort my own emotions out. But also at the same time, everything that I wanted from life sort of became very different. So what I was satisfied with before that event and what I was satisfied with after that event were really two different things so I think psychotherapy helped me work out my new sort of way of being in the world after that experience it was part of my own healing I mean they they call psychotherapists wounded healers so I don't know many psychotherapists who've glided through life I mean I don't know how many people do just glide through life where are they and especially now like with the pandemic that's I guess it's touched everybody if even if you were fine before yeah absolutely I think for some people this would have been maybe one of their first shocks in their life or, or something that really really challenged the way they see the world yeah for sure and what about you like I mean how has the pandemic changed things for you 
It's been a year where I've learned a lot about myself. I've spent a lot of time alone. Before the pandemic, I was quite good at being alone, but I think I've really, really connected with myself over this past year in a way that I wasn't doing before. So yeah, it's not been a bed of roses, but it's been a very powerful learning journey, I think. What kinds of things do you think you've done that have helped you be alone? I think the first lockdown, I was like militant. I was doing my Kundalini practice, um, which is something that really has helped me connect to myself. I was cold showers. I was walk every day. I think it was just something of, of, about control. And the second time, I just let all that go out the window. It was completely different. But I, I think I mentioned my Kundalini practice. It's really a practice that's about an, your inner experience. Could you elaborate a little bit more about what Kundalini is? Yeah, so, so it's a yoga and meditation, but um, it differs from other yogas in that it's more of a meditative practice. So you're really focusing, eyes closed all of the time, using breath control, and you're sort of using the body to manipulate the breath and move energy around your body rather than a sort of physical body practice. It's a real crossover between a traditional meditation and a sort of traditional Hatha yoga. I've done Kundalini a few times. I think it's one of those types of yogas that you have to really go into fully. I found it quite difficult, actually. found it very, very personal. I feel, thought it was that quite intimate in quite a lot of ways. There can be a lot that comes up in yeah. that. I've ended up doing a Kundalini yoga teacher training. But, you know, when we're talking about what happens in those states, it's an altered state as well. So there's sometimes a lot that comes up and, and for people, they need to process that. So we met in Lisbon and both of us have, over the last few years, have tried lots of different things. I guess oh, yeah. a lot of them have been holistic things. You know, like I feel like you recommended women's circles and, you know, that amazing shiatsu massage guy and acupuncture. A lot of the times it's been a case that you've told me about something, so I've gone and done it. <laughs> like I said, I've tried lots of different things. I guess they are all a way to release whatever it is that you need to kind of let go of. That thing goes very hard. Bloody hell, yeah. <laughs> it really, really is. And how has moving countries helped you let go? Has that, has that helped in any way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I left London and came to Lisbon. And I think for me, it helped me change or maybe change isn't the right word. I, I think I'd already changed and the structure around me was exactly the same. So I think moving countries gave me a freedom to, to be the sort of newer version of myself that I already was, but sort of struggling a bit with what with the structure that was still as it was does that make sense yeah like you had to kind of recalibrate a little bit yeah and I, I know you know I also wanted a, a more balanced lifestyle and to be healthier and more relaxed so I think those things also help you change or change back I don't really know which way it is <laughs> yeah I mean you did all that on your own and it sounds like lots of the journeys that you have done are on your own yeah was is that a choice do you do you like doing things on your own like how do you relate to being by yourself very good question is it a choice who knows it's, uh, I think I am incredibly independent and I think I have got more 
more confident with doing things on my own as I've gotten older. And I think that it's very empowering to know that you can go on whatever holiday you want to go on. You can go on whatever journey you want to go on. You don't sort of have to wait around for somebody to agree that that's, you know, what they want to do as well. There's a freedom in it. I don't know whether it's a choice. I think it's just been my pathway, I think, to just sort of do whatever I need to do. <laughs> yeah. Are there bad bits to being alone? You know, I think actually, and this is this personal thing that I think loneliness is something that sort of, I don't know whether it was personal to me, but sort of felt a bit shameful, like you sort of shouldn't feel lonely. But I guess that would be the one thing that being on your own, you know, moments of loneliness. But do we get those same moments around with people too? Yeah, because you can be lonely with, with other people. I think it's interesting mm. that you mentioned shame because I do think society puts forward a shame to be being on your own we're not encouraged to do it no but I wonder why and I do think it's something that that needs to be spoken about more and celebrated you know it's like yeah it just really is nice to hear I, when I listen to the other two podcasts there's somebody else talking about it and it's just like destigmatizing the fact that like people and particularly women you know they do the things that they want to do on their own and like deal with it <laughs> Yeah. I mean, both of us are in our 30s and neither of us are with anyone or have kids or whatever. And I do think we, we have a bit of a harder time of it. Yeah, I think it's like normal people not being not being in relationships. It's like, you know, yeah, it just needs to be normalized, I think. As a psychotherapist, have you got the answers to what loneliness is? <laughs> do you know what it is? Do you have to study what it is, you know? No, I mean, we don't study what things are in that sense. Anything like that is a, is a personal inquiry. We really learn how to attend to another person rather than deciding what things are and aren't. So I think actually quite the opposite. We're, we're taught very much we're not human. We know anything, you know. So if someone tells me that they're lonely, I don't think of loneliness from my viewpoint. I inquire about what loneliness is for that other person. So I don't know what loneliness is in general. Well, I mean, I guess it's a feeling and feelings are not tangible. They're not explainable things. But we all know what loneliness is. That's the thing. Well, it is a common experience. We all kind of have to go through it, I think. It's a, ba mm. it's a basic human experience, isn't it, to feel lonely? Yeah, absolutely. But I think you mentioned in one of your other podcasts, you know, being alone and being lonely are two very different things. So I think learning to be alone without being lonely is something that's very freeing. What's your kind of favourite thing to do when you're on your own? I spend a lot of time when I'm on my own reading. Also, dancing and playing music on my own is very fun. You've got good playlists. <laughs> For solo lockdown dances. But but like, I mean, it just can be anything because you can just be like, I'm just going to do this now. Or I'm just going to do that now. I, I reset and I rest a lot when I'm on my own. What about eating, Helen? Like, well, what do you like to eat when you're on your own? Well, I mean, eating and cooking over this last year has become <laughs> moments of like pure joy and stress relief from absolute despair about having to wash up again after myself after another meal. So my relationship with food and cooking is... <laughs> It's changed a lot. But I, I eat a lot of Asian food, I think. A lot of sort of stir fries and soups. I love a good sort of coconut milk curry, you know, all sorts of different varieties. So that, that's oh, yeah. a real go-to, a comfort food, but also something that I find still, even though I've eaten dozens of them, fairly exciting. A 
And that's quite hard to find in Lisbon, isn't it? Like in a restaurant, I find it's, there's not that many East Asian or South Asian restaurants in Lisbon. No, and there's not a lot of spice here. Oh my God, no. <laughs> and I, I like really flavorful food in that sense. Like a altered state of... Well, uh, well yeah. is it when you're When you're eating spicy food? <laughs> Probably, yeah. The more flavour, the more altered your state is. I'm tripping out on uh, curries. People have reported to hallucinate when they eat really spicy chilies. Right. So part of your like your interests, I think. Yes, absolutely. I was I was going to ask what the best thing about being alone was, but I think you answered that very well with saying that it's the kind of freedom. I think really what I do when I'm alone is I reflect, I release things, I learn, and I rest. They're important things to do. So you kind of talk about resting on your own. Do you find it, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Like, do you like being around other people? Yeah, well, this is a really, really good question because I used to think I was an extrovert. It's becoming more clear to me that I'm quite introverted. And obviously I can switch between the two, but I really do need that time on my own. And I wasn't aware of that until later on in my life. I think the idea of introvert and extrovert is really important. It's really important to learn what you are. I I had the same thing as you. I always thought I was really extroverted and found myself just getting really tired in social situations and also a bit awkward feeling you know feeling a bit anxious when I had to go to social situations and then when I realized that I'm probably just a really extroverted introvert I was like oh that's how I can structure my life now and so that's that's why I find it interesting when you talk about rest because I think you know introverts rest when they're alone whereas I think extroverts take their rest when they're with other people right yeah no really interesting I think there's a lot at the moment about sort of rest as resistance you know there's a lot of conversations coming through saying you know you don't have to be productive all the time you don't have to be earning money and doing things constantly you know you have a human rights to be rested yeah leave us alone (laughs) we're resting (laughs) (laughs) so I'm now wondering whether Helen is like my own personal northern much more down-to-earth version of the goop I mean, as you can hear, Helen is not so head in the clouds, which sometimes I think the goop kind of is. Everything with her is rooted in trial and error. You know, she gives everything a good go, and if it doesn't turn out, she just moves on and gets on with it. She's faced lots of difficult things. Cancer, career changes, moving countries on her own. You know, bloody terrifying things, actually. But she's just so curious about her own path, and I think she's definitely helped me think differently about my own journey. I'd like to say thanks to her for that, and thanks to her for talking to me and sharing. Also, what a treat she's given me one of her playlists for dancing around the house to alone, which I've already tested out, guys whilst I was making that spicy veggie curry that we were talking about and I can confirm that it works very well. You can find the playlist on the podcast Substack blog. I've put up a fair amount of further watching and reading about psychedelic integration. You know, make your own mind up about it but just please bear in mind what Helen has already spoken about that it's still really early research. I've also put up some more information about what Kundalini Yoga is and a really hilarious article about chili hallucinations. The recipe for Helen's coconut curry is also up now on the How to Eat Alone substack, which you can find by visiting howtoeatalone.substack.com. And if you do feel like subscribing to my substack, please do. I'll be posting lots of lovely things about being alone and eating alone on there. 
You can also follow the podcast on Instagram. The handle is at How to Eat Alone Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed being alone with me. I'd really appreciate it if you like this podcast, that you would share it with anyone who you think might like it too. See you next time for the next episode of How to Eat Alone.